This is the Swift Bisondale podcast, the show that answers your questions about Swift development. Hi, everybody, and welcome back for episode number 24 of this podcast. I'm your host, John Sundell, and I'm really excited to be joined here today by another fantastic guest. She is an iOS developer at Video Labs, working on the VLC app for iOS. It's Carola Nitz. Welcome to the show, Carola. Hi. I'm glad to be here. Maybe I should call you just Caro, right? Yeah. Because otherwise it's too formal. Definitely. I really <laughs> prefer that. So uh, we just met a couple of days ago. We were in Berlin for UIConf, uh, which was uh, really, really, it was a really, really great conference. Definitely. They've done such an amazing work, actually, with the conference. I've been there since 2013, I think, for the first time. And it's grown so much and it's become more and more professional like every year. Yeah. It's amazing. Also my hometown. So I obviously love it. Yeah. It's great. You know, when you, when you're living in the same city that the conference is, I've only had that experience once when I went to MobiConf here in Krakow and I could take my bike to the conference, which was pretty cool. Awesome. Yeah. Um, so at UIConf, you gave a really good talk about debugging and about, you know, how to use LLDB, use all the tools that, you know, Apple gives us, but may not be that well advertised. Yeah, true. I don't know for me, like I learned so much in the last five years through my seniors. And I remember I was always sitting there and thinking, oh man, I wish somebody would have told me that earlier. And I figured, yeah, maybe I should be that person for other people. Yeah, passing the torch, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's always good. Um, so the talk you gave is called Debugging Things Your Senior Hasn't Told You About Yet, <laughs> which I thought was a really good title. Um, so in this, on this episode, we want to kind of focus in on that and talk about debugging, talk about LLDB. I thought that would be like the perfect follow-up for last uh, episode, which was about, you know, LLVM and compilers and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, but before we dive into, you know, that fun stuff, uh, let's talk a little bit more about kind of what you do right now, because I think the way you work is, uh, is really interesting because you work at Video Labs, which... A lot of people might not know, but you're actually the company behind the VLC app, which a lot of people know. Yeah, that's true. Well, there's a consulting company behind VLC, and there's also what some people might know, the nonprofit called Videolab. Um, but yeah, the company that I work for is um, basically working on some features when some clients come to us and they say, hey, we need to have this kind of feature and VLC kit or libvlc, which are the libraries that power this. and um, a fun part for me is I get to work on the open source app on VLC for iOS, which shows up, um, shows up all the features. So yeah, it's super interesting, um, especially if you get paid to work on open source. <laughs> That's a dream, right? Yes, exactly. And um, I get to work remotely, which is also nice. The company's actually based in Paris. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, and it has grown to 20 people now. And um, it's always interesting because you get to work on the new video things, right? We recently uh, integrated Chromecast. That's going to come out soon for the VLC files. And um, we work on VR. And uh, wow. it's just so much, actually. It's so interesting. Yeah, that's really cool. Because video is one of these things that is progressing quite quickly, right? It's like at WWDC, there's usually like new APIs and things like that for you know, not only for cameras, but for videos and video playback. 
Yeah, it's so complex. Even like all the streaming. Actually, when I started again, like a year ago, I didn't actually realize how complex this app is. Like you can start it at home and realizes uh, what kind of FTP service there are, what kind of like media service there are. And, um, you know, it's not only like your local playback, but also you can change subtitles, you can change audio tracks, you can change, yeah, everything. Yeah, it's a really powerful app and mm -hmm. it's really interesting because i mean vlc is one of these apps that i just feel like have has been around forever especially on the mac definitely i actually have an old ibook and i was recently getting it out and i was looking at the apps that i had installed and i had vlc on there like that's from <laughs> it's from 2006 or something and i wow. you could see that it was like compiled by um felix who has built the original mac app and ios app and it's so funny for me because I know him now for like, I don't know, five years or something. And just seeing that is like amazing for me. Yeah, because I remember like me also getting, I actually had the same uh, iBook, the white one, right? Yeah, the, exactly. the iBook G4. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I also remember like I was running VLC on that thing, right? And I don't know of any other app that I actually use maybe other than like Safari or some built-in apps, but I don't think I know any other third-party app that I'm still using to this day that I actually was also using on that old machine. Ah, oh, that's so good to hear. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's really cool. So uh, I'm, I guess like this code base must have been, you know, evolving a lot over the years. And uh, was there ever like a big rewrite or is it the same code base that has been worked on now for, I don't know, like 10, 15 years, something like that? I'm still working with code from 2008 in there. Wow. <laughs> yes, there are still like pthreads in there and um, we're kind of like trying to get it more to um, more up to date, but it's like a lot of work, right? It's just, mm -hmm. it's really still like an old code base and you not always have time to refactor everything. And it's, especially if it's like something that's been around for so long. And I remember actually there was one piece of code and I was like, hey, there, there's a bug in there. And I heard like, don't touch this. This is fragile. And I was like, oh. here be dragons. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> um, but it's also super interesting because you see how people develop back in the day, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's, yeah, it's very interesting to see how this thing has evolved over the years. And I, I started working on that as a contributor just for fun in 2013. And it was just this fun project where I could always like try out things that I have just learned. And I was like, oh, I can build it in there as well. And I can try out this new API. And yeah, it's for me, it's like a really wonderful project that has just accompanied me for the last five years. Yeah, that's really, really cool. Mm -hmm. uh, I love when, you know, companies fully open source their apps. It's mm -hmm. uh, still something that is quite rare. And there, I guess there is a bunch of challenges as well when it comes to like, how do you manage the secrets or signing keys? Or how do you ship to the app store? Or how do you prevent people from cloning it, etc.? So uh, what are some of the challenges of doing this kind of open source work and working completely in the open? Um, definitely the cloning part is a big issue that we had. We actually were also, um, you might know that we got um, out of the app store, kicked out kind of-ish because of some issues. Right. Um, and we had a lot of people who just cloned the app and put it on the app store. And when we tried to get in after we resolved the issues, um, we couldn't actually because they said, oh, you're actually violating um, our our rule here. You're copying this other app. And we're like, no, we're not. Oh. We're actually <laughs> VLC. Yeah, so we tried to avoid that first by like having a more um, closed repository where you needed to um, request access. 
but um, we recently switched to being more open and we're now on GitHub as well and have pull requests. So yeah, I guess you have to find some kind of middle ground, right? In order exactly. to, you know, both be able to be, you know, keep being open and accepting pull requests and contribution from the community, but also kind of protecting the app itself and, you know, the brand as well. Yeah, it's really, really hard because everybody knows VLC, right? And and also, we also have to be careful with our keys as well. I have actually like a file that just gets applied just before submission with our keys. Yeah, it's and sometimes it slips in and I'm like, oh, shouldn't have. Right. Yeah, I guess that can be a challenge as well. It is. Yeah. So before you worked at this, uh, you know, very open, uh, doing all the work on GitHub kind of company, you know, with VLC and all this stuff, you worked at a company which does kind of the complete opposite, <laughs> at least in uh, at least in terms of their kind of core products. I mean, now they're doing more and more open source. And of course, I'm talking about Apple, which is pretty cool. You used to work at Apple uh, on Apple Maps, right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, that was actually an amazing time. I had the best colleagues that I could have wished for. I mean, we were not only colleagues, we were actually also friends and would take trips and they were all so smart and I really, really enjoyed it. And so passionate people everywhere and so many female colleagues. I don't think I ever had or will have as many female colleagues as I had over there. That's really nice. Um, yeah, so I loved it a lot and I would definitely recommend anybody who has the chance to do it. Yeah, yeah, it's one of these like companies that a lot of developers kind of dream about working at, right? Yeah. So how did you end up kind of, you know, fulfilling that dream and actually getting <laughs> to go work for Apple? That was hard work. Um, so it was always my dream to go to San Francisco. So I wasn't only applying at Apple, I was also applying at like other companies like Facebook, Google, Yelp. And yeah, Apple. And I was lucky enough that um, I got some referrals. I think otherwise it's so hard to get an onsite into or just an interview in general. And then I was actually, I was preparing a lot with a programming interviews exposed book and cracking the coding interview. And I was doing mock interviews with people and I would get rejected so often. Like Facebook rejected me, Google did. And um, with Apple, I just, yeah, I guess I got lucky. <laughs> I sometimes feel like, I mean, of course I know things as well, but yeah, there, I had a lot of telephone interviews before they flew me out and then at back-to-back interviews from like 11 till five. Wow. Marathon. Yes. Yes. But it was also fun, you know, like if you, if you actually get all these questions, it was more about like, oh, there's this thing and maybe we could do it like this and that. So interesting experience even like if you don't get the job sometimes just having this experience and learning for these jobs is giving you so much oh yeah at least that's my opinion yeah absolutely and i mean there are a lot of different opinions in the community kind of you know about this style of interviewing about these marathons where you have like whiteboard interviews and you have to reverse linked lists and the kind of these kind of things yeah and I think fundamentally kind of one thing that I always think try to think about is that these kind of interviews, they are not so much about coding per se, but they're more about, you know, problem solving or solving a puzzle or, you know, the way you think, the way you reason about a problem and things like that. Yeah. And how you approach it. If you're asking questions, um, if you think about certain edge cases. Yeah, exactly. Because at the end of the day, I think, you know, you can go get a 
really awesome job at a lot of different companies, like being a really good developer. But I guess what these companies are looking for, and it was the same at Spotify where I was working before, where they're more looking for these kind of, you know, problem solvers that are diving deep into problems and, you know, can reason their way to something. And I guess this is kind of where this kind of interview style is coming from, even if you might not like it. Yeah, it's also, you know, how you fit into the team and how you actually like work together with some people that you've just met, right? Because yeah. when you're in such a big company, you will not know everybody. No, you'll meet and, new yeah. people every day, right? I mean, you'll exactly. meet people in the hallway that you've never met before. <laughs> yeah, you get thrown onto like a project where you have to collaborate with like some other teams and they might exchange people and you have to get something done quickly sometimes and... Yeah, you can just figure out that way if you can immediately collaborate with somebody as well. All right, cool. So um, now let's go ahead and start talking about debugging. And this is an area uh, that I am very interested in. Like I've been thinking a lot lately about debugging and like about how I use the debugger and trying to take advantage of some of the more powerful features because it's pretty easy, at least if you've been a developer for a while, to fall back to old habits of doing like caveman style debugging, <laughs> where you're just putting print statements everywhere. Oh, yeah. Uh, do you ever have this experience as well? Oh, yes, yes, definitely. <laughs> and especially when I just started out with Swift in the beginning when the debugger wasn't yet good, like when PO didn't give you anything in LRDB, I was always doing print line debugging. And yeah. I sometimes still do. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's good for a certain class of problems. For example, when you're dealing with some uh, race conditions, for example, setting mm -hmm. a breakpoint could actually solve the race condition, right? Yeah. So by just printing, you could get a more realistic situation. Yeah, sometimes you can just have like breakpoints and interrupt the program, right? Yeah, exactly. Cool. So let's start by diving into LLDB. Uh, but before we do, uh, we're actually going to have a little bit of a contest here on the show. And this is really exciting. So three of my friends, they're organizing the ADDC conference in Barcelona in July. And this is a design and developers conference, which I think is really cool. And I'll be speaking there. So I was talking to my friend Matei, who is one of the organizers of this conference. And he came up with a pretty cool idea. And that is, why don't we give away three free tickets to this conference to listeners of the show? And of course, I think that's a fantastic idea because who doesn't like free tickets, right? <laughs> so I thought about it, like, how are we going to do this contest? And I could, of course, you know, ask you to fill in some form and send me your email address or something, but I don't really want to do that. So I thought, let's do something a bit more fun. So if you want to enter this contest for winning one of these free tickets to the ADDC conference, uh, here's what you do. You just go to Twitter and you pick your favorite episode of the show and then you simply share it. Like just tweet it, tweet your favorite episode of the show, like a link to, to the podcast. And when you do, you can just add the hashtag SundelADDC in one word. So just hashtag SundelADDC. Don't forget to do that because what I'll do is that on June the 1st, I will just gather up all of those tweets with that hashtag and I'll pick three lucky winners. And those three people will get all free tickets to this ADDC conference. And I think that's going to be really cool. So if you want to find out more about this conference, you can just go to adconf, that is adconf.com slash sundel. And this is also really cool. If you use that URL, 
they will also give you 50 euros off uh, the ticket to the conference if you don't get it for free. So really cool offer here, I think, from my friends at the ADDC conference. Uh, and this is not a sponsor or anything, but they just came up with this idea of giving away these free tickets, which I thought was uh, really cool. So uh, if you want to enter, just uh, tweet your favorite episode of the show using the hashtag SundelADDC. And I hope to see you in uh, Barcelona in July. All right, so um, let's now start by talking about LLDB. First of all, Carol, what really is LLDB? Well, that's um, the low-level debugger that Apple uses in Xcode. Um, it's the underlying tool for, yeah, I don't know, setting breakpoints, for example. Whenever you use the UI and set a breakpoint, it's actually LLDB underneath that gets a call to do this. Yeah, exactly. So the console that you see in Xcode, it's, I mean, you might have noticed it says LLDB even. So it's like powered by LLDB, just like when you're using your terminal, it might be powered by bash, then the console in Xcode is powered by LLDB, right? Mm -hmm, exactly. Uh, so what can you use LLDB for? I mean, I think a lot of people, they know about like PO that lets you like print an object, but what are some of the more kind of advanced use cases or what are some of the features that LLDB offers? Well, for me, I often use it when I just have an address of an object and I want to change things on it just to see if the change that I want to do um, actually, you know, works. Like if you stop in the view debugger, for example, and you see, oh, that button doesn't have a frame or a height, uh, you can just change it on the fly in the runtime. That's probably more one of the more advanced usages, I guess. Yeah, so how would you do that? Like you are not using PO then, I guess you're using some other command. Um, you actually have to use expression or PO in front of it. And then you just cast the address to the object. Like for example, if an address is a UI view, you cast it to a UI view and then you call dot frame on it. And then you set it to CG rect, whatever you want to set it to, and then just hit enter. And then that variable is changed or that property is changed. And a lot of people don't know about this and it's so helpful sometimes. Yeah, because I think this is something that took me a while to understand as well when I was learning like programming in general or iOS development was that if I stop in the debugger, like the program is running and I can execute code at runtime, like I can just inject some code there that will be run in the context of the app. Exactly. And sometimes, you know, you can also use LLDB to just attach to processes, right? Mm -hmm. When you don't, when you're not even in Xcode. You know, you can even run it from the terminal and attach to a process and then changing things at runtime becomes so handy when you work on Mac apps. And that's something I didn't even like for me, LLDB only existed in Xcode until like three or four years ago. I didn't even realize like you could use it from the terminal. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I've actually pretty much ever used it from a terminal. I've only used it from within Xcode, I think. Yeah, for VLC, um, you need to sometimes do this because at least back in the day, um, you couldn't just build it with Xcode and run it. So that was the only way how you could debug it. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, this is like the first day when you join, right? It's like, hey, by the way, you can't use Xcode. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, seriously. I was like so in shock. And I was like, but, but how do you do this? Right. So then you would launch the app from the command line and then mm -hmm. manually attach to the debugger. Uh, you couldn't do that through Xcode either because I know in Xcode, you can actually attach the debugger to another process. You had to do it on the command line. 
Um, no, you could actually use Xcode for this as well, right? You can just say that you um, use a different um, app as like the target for Xcode to run. But that's also something that I just learned like two years ago or something. Yeah, and this is something, yeah, it's it's not very well advertised. And since the debugger attaches automatically to your process when you build and run, I think a lot of people, including myself, uh, had the uh, idea that it was like always attached to that running process that you built yourself, right? Yeah, exactly. Of course. And I find it so interesting. I, I started reading um, the advanced debugging book by Derek. Um, I forgot his last name, but he actually teaches you even how you can attach your LEDB um, to Xcode, for example. Like you right. need to turn something off when you restart the computer, but then you can actually debug Xcode and change at runtime the 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 view on there and set it hidden and i was like so amazed and you learn so much when you do this yeah it's a great spelunking tool right <laughs> if you want to reverse engineer things <laughs> definitely and so many people don't realize how powerful it is because it's just yeah so not intuitive i think there was a talk at last year's wwdc about how they they're using LDB to debug LDB or something like that. They were like, we're using our debugger to debug our debugger. And it was uh, very Inception. <laughs> Sounds good. I actually, I don't think I've seen that one. I should see that. I should watch it. I'll try to find it and put a link in the show notes. That would be great. Yeah. So you can obviously like use expressions and you can use PO with more advanced, like, you know, code that you're running in order to do things. Uh, but there's also a bunch of other things you can use LDB for. And one of those things is breakpoints. And, I think a lot of people know, you know, you can set breakpoints in Xcode, you can use exception breakpoints to get an, uh, a, a call or a, a breakpoint triggered whenever an exception gets uh, triggered in your app. But you can also use uh, symbolic breakpoints. And this is something I've started to use more and more lately. And uh, it's a really powerful tool. Yeah, I mean, sometimes you get some some messages also in, in Xcode when it says like, oh, you broke your auto layout and set a symbolic breakpoint on I don't actually know what the name is, but yeah. Some long was, name, some yes, log object exactly. name. Yeah. Exactly. And then you just get all of this output or yeah, you can actually see where it breaks. So that's awesome. But there are like so many of them. Yeah. I know one thing that a lot of people do, uh, which I think you also include in your talk, which is there's a common issue when you're using LLDB that you can't like, it will say something like, oh, I don't know about the property frame of UI view, right? Oh, yes, yeah, exactly. And then you can use a symbolic breakpoint on- Your application main. Yeah, exactly. And mm -hmm. import UI kit and foundation, right? Exactly, or Coco on Mac. Yeah, exactly. What's the reason that you need to do that? Um, so, you have two different contexts when you're actually debugging that some people might not know about. You have the Objective-C one and you have the Swift one. And by default, it will select the Objective-C one for you. So when you try to debug some Swift code, it will just say, oh, I haven't found that frame variable on um, that object that you just gave me. So basically by um, importing UIKit, you switch that context. But I haven't yet understood how that actually works in detail, but I've gotten that far. I guess it's when you do the at import, it does the module-based import that oh, was introduced yes. in Objective-C. And I think then you also get the Swift kind of headers or the Swift annotations mm -hmm. uh, with it. Because one problem is when you are, like for example, if you use UI application dot shared, 
uh, in Objective-C will be called UI application shared application, right? So sure. the Swift importer kind of strips that out or, you know, makes it more Swifty. And I think that's the reason why I can't find it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, true. That makes sense. So that's really cool. You know, uh, LLDB has lots of features. You can even script it. You can use like Python to script LLDB. This is something I've never tried, but it seems pretty cool. Yeah, I actually haven't done it myself either, but I use um, Chisel sometimes. Ah, right. That's a Facebook project, right? The extensions to LLDB. Exactly. And they have like a lot of like um, nice handy commands that you can use um, that you can then call an LRDB, for example, to visualize some CG path or like images or views. And there's so many other things. Um, you can also do auto trace. Auto layout trace. Yeah. Yeah. They have just so many things. Also for watch points, they, they make heavy use of that. I'm thinking because since this is a Python based uh, system, like the scripting system, I'm thinking because now Google and Chris Latner, who is now working at Google, they're making all these changes for machine learning in order for Swift to be able to interoperate with Python better. I'm thinking if this could also open up the doors for Swift scripting LLDB. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. That would be really cool, right? Because yes. then people could write LLDB like extensions and plugins in Swift. Oh my God, that would be so great. That yeah. would make it so much more intuitive, actually. Yeah, and that's the thing, both with the uh, Core ML stuff and all, all these kind of things that, you know, it's not that Python is like a bad language or anything, but just having everything in Swift just makes it more accessible to Swift developers. That kind of makes sense, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. Cool. So another uh, big reason to use LLDB and debugging in general is something that we always have to do when we are uh, working with apps, and that is to find memory leaks. You know, memory leaks, they always happen uh, one way or the other. So what are some of the kind of tips and tricks that you normally use in order to debug memory leaks? Well, for me, it's I use sometimes just breakpoints and um, for example you can set a sound on them that's also something not a lot of people know that but um, when you then for example like go between UI view controllers and set one when one gets deallocated and it makes this pop sound oh right <laughs> that's clever yeah you know actually okay that was deallocated yeah ding <laughs> yes exactly nice you can even turn it into a drinking game <laughs> <laughs> oh my god that would be a fun drinking game every time you pop a view controller. Yeah. Or maybe every time you pop a view controller and it doesn't play the sound. Maybe that's the drinking game. Yeah, I think that would be smarter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a really cool uh, trick. Uh, another thing that I think you included in your talk was us kind of how you can use LLDB to also read the raw memory registers and kind of find out memory leaks that way. Yeah, exactly. So you can read out the general purpose um, registers um, by using register read. Um, yeah, you, that, those are transient registers. And what does that mean? Like, how, how would you use that in like a normal day-to-day -day context? Well, for me, I used it less for like memory leaks in general, but it was more I was stuck somewhere in my, in like Apple's framework, and I didn't know what part of my code it was actually like calling this. So um, by calling that, I got more um, objects that were actually not listed in the little um, overview that you have on the left next to LLDB. So I could just see more files. Right. So when you are uh, stopping on a breakpoint, you normally see like the call stack on the left yeah. and you see the frame, the current frame. Mm -hmm. And with register read, you can see kind of all the memory registers and what, what they contain. Exactly. 
And from that, I guess you could see like what objects are currently in memory and if something is there that really shouldn't be or maybe, you know, something that should be there, which isn't there. Yeah, it gives you just a little bit more information, right? That little extra that you sometimes need when, yeah, the rest of the UI of um, Xcode doesn't show you everything. Yeah, exactly. Uh, another tool that uh, Apple introduced, I think it was last year or the year before, I think it was last year, it's the uh, new memory graph debugger in Xcode, uh, which is a really nice tool that I've started using more and more to kind of see all the relationships between all your different objects and you know what object is retaining what. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I haven't yet played around that much with it, to be honest. Yeah, I think that's 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 actually the tool they were uh, showing off in the talk I mentioned earlier, and they were were talking about how they actually used SpriteKit to implement it, which I thought was pretty cool. <laughs> oh yeah, I actually remember it. It's like you have all those objects, right? Yeah, because one thing that I know is especially confusing for beginners, but can even you know get us old timers as well from time to time, is kind of you know how the automatic reference counting system works in terms of managing memory that you have, you know, strong references, you have weak references. And sometimes you have like a closure that captures an object and you might not be aware. And then using this uh, memory graph debugger, you can actually get a very nice overview of, of all your objects. And you can see, oh, uh, this instance of this view is retained like 100 times by these different closures, for example, and that would give you another piece of the puzzle. Oh, so you can basically debug retain circles and everything with that, right? Yeah, exactly. Because oh, you will see nice. in the graph, you will see like this object points to this object, which also points back to the original object or it goes in a circle or something. So you can very easily identify these retain cycles. And whenever you have an object that is retained too many times by too many objects, for example. Yeah, and I was always using instruments for that and leaks. You know, that is always my way of debugging these things. Yeah, I think, yeah, that, that one is great as well, especially if you want to kind of see um, like in what context and what part of the app things are actually leaking because you can mm -hmm. move around the app and, you know, click around it and see what actually gets leaked in the, in the instrument in real time. Exactly. But the memory graph debugger is perfect for when you have a hunch <laughs> or where it might be. You can just stop, you know, put a breakpoint or stop the program and you can actually see, you know, what the memory layout looks like right now. That's really great. Yeah. Sounds good. I definitely need to look more into that. Yeah, so <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a really good tool. And I think, you know, for me, I usually use a combination of these like built-in high-level tools in Xcode like this uh, memory graph debugger and more low-level tools like LLDB and reading the raw registers because sometimes you can't find the information that you want in these high-level tools. You have to mm -hmm. dig deeper. Uh, so sometimes it's good to have both at your disposal. Oh, definitely. All right, let's move on now to the next topic. But before we do, I want to take a very quick break and thank our next sponsor. And it's my good friends at Instabug, which have a really great offer for everyone listening to the show. So we're talking about debugging here. And like we've mentioned, you know, when you're going to debug a problem in an app, what you really need, what really comes down to is good information. And this is exactly what Instabug provides you with, using a super easy to use tool, both for you as the developer and for your testers and your users. So the way it works is that Instabug, they give you this lightweight SDK that just takes a minute to set up. And I can tell you because I just did it for one of my apps and their onboarding process couldn't be any simpler. And then the next time you send a build of your app to one of your testers, this is really cool. 
they can just shake their phone and they get this sleek menu that they can use to report a bug, they can send you screenshots, and they can even record a video of them using the app. And that is so powerful when it comes to, you know, getting more information about a bug, getting the context, and they can even start a chat with you if they want to like provide you real-time information, which is, you know, super useful. So what all of this does, it, it's makes it so much easier to get good feedback, both from your beta testers and from your users. And of course, Instabug also generates like really detailed crash reports if your app starts crashing. And they even have this really cool feature where you can send surveys to your users as well, like ask their opinion about a new feature or something like that. So overall, it's a great package, it makes it so much easier to debug your app, you know, get better feedback and uh, you know, get information about crashes as well. So this is a really cool tool, make sure to check it out. And the good news is that you can sign up completely for free. All you have to do is go to instabug.com slash Sundell. That's my last name, S-U-N-D-E-L-L. And they also have a great special offers for all of you listeners. If you sign up for one of their paid plans, and if you enter offer code Sundell, they will give you 25% off any of their plans. Now that is that is a really good offer, I think. And again, all you have to do is go to instabug.com slash Sundell and enter offer code Sundell to save 25% off any of their plans. Now make sure you use that URL if you decide to sign up because that tells them that you came from here and it really helps support my work. So thank you so much to Instabug for supporting Swift by Sundell and for helping me to continue making this show possible. Cool. Uh, another thing you talk about in your uh, talk is, uh, which we'll put a link to in the show notes, by the way, if anyone wants to watch it, which I definitely recommend. It was a really, really great talk. Uh, you talk about handling invalid states and the different kind of tools that we have at our disposal for doing that. So uh, you talk about assertions and preconditions, etc. So what are some of these uh, tools that we have and how do you usually use them in different ways? Yeah, so assertions, for example, are super handy when you know, okay, this object shouldn't be nil and you can test for these states and you can just stop then at that point and you can even like have a little message in there and say like, oh, this is nil because, I don't know, reason X, Y, Z that you, when you develop your code, know about. But, you know, when you later on get into that condition again, you might have forgotten why this this could happen, you know? Yeah. And it just helps you so much when you develop your app. And um yeah, these are things that are only around in debug, so during development. Um, if you actually need to have these um, in, or need to catch these invalid states during release or production just because you get into a really bad state that could actually corrupt um, some data, you probably want to use preconditions and they will also um, work in release, which assertions don't. And you have the same um, as like assertion and assertion failure, and you have precondition, precondition failure. Those are the four ones. And then you have fatal error as well, which is like when you want to kill the app instantly. Yeah. I think most people are familiar with fatal error because Xcode generates this when you are uh, subclassing a class that is uh, conforming to NS coding, like a <laughs> UI view controller, for example. You yeah. have this, it always implements like fatal error for you. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. So I think this this is something that divides a lot of people, like, you know, how to use these kind of assertions, preconditions, etc. And some people are of the opinion that you should never crash the app, right? Like crashing is the worst thing that could happen. 
And by adding assertions and, and things like that, you are causing more crashes. And some people even like to turn on assertions in production. So where do you kind of fall in this uh, in this debate? Like, do you use a lot of preconditions? Uh, do you would you rather you know trigger an assertion than crashing, or how do you usually think about these things? For me, I'm mostly using assertions to be honest, and that's just like something that helps me during development most of the times. Um, I don't crash the app that often and release. I should probably do it more. I'm still, to be honest, I'm still figuring all this out, when to use what, and I'm also discussing that so often with my junior. Okay, should I use this or that there? But we're mostly using assertions. Yeah. I think like the argument that I usually use for, because I'm 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 a big proponent of using these things. Like I, I usually say that, Every time you make an assumption that you can't enforce with the compiler, you -hmm. should put an assertion in there or a precondition in there, depending on how severe it is. So for example, if you have a function that takes a string, and if that string is empty, then things are going to go bad. Like you're going to, you're going to do something bad. You're going to insert like bad data into your database or, you know, something terrible will happen. Then there should probably be a precondition there checking if that string is not empty. Oh, definitely. But at the same time, like, you know, that can actually cause crashes. So for me, like the way I like to reason about it is I would rather have some crashes for a short period of time and then I can actually fix them and I can see what went wrong rather than have like these, you know, six months of bug reports about this weird state that some people can get into and I don't know what is going on. Oh, definitely. I actually need to use more preconditions now that I think about it. Yeah, um, I wrote a blog post. Uh, it was maybe like a year ago now. It's called Picking the Right Way of Failing in Swift. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's about how I like to reason about these things. And one thing I uh, talk about there is um, also a little bit about how to deal with optionals in this case. Like in some APIs, they give you an optional. And, you know, if you, some people, they might like force unwrap that, but then you might not get the best diagnostics. So then I also like to like use a precondition or an assert or an extension on the optional type to actually give me better information about what went wrong. Interesting. I need to read that blog article. (laughs) (laughs) It'll be in the show notes. (laughs) Good. Awesome. And the final thing uh, that you brought up in this talk of yours, which I thought was also very interesting, and this is something I use a lot as well, is launch arguments. And this is something that you know, we mostly associate with using command line tools, like, you know, calling a command line tool and sending a launch argument to it. But you can also use launch arguments in many different ways when working on an iOS or Mac app as well. Yeah, exactly. Um, You can turn on a lot of um, more information, like debugging information um, for, yeah, core data, for example, has a lot for concurrency debug so that you can make sure that um, a certain object is only accessed from the right thread and um, on from the right context, actually, yeah. Also, you can get more information about what kind of SQL statements are used in the background. And uh, yeah, there are just so many of them. Yeah, what's a good way to find out about these things? Because like all these core data launch arguments, like how do you find out about them? For me, it was mostly, I knew about one of them and then I was like Googling for that. And then I found an article and they were like, oh, there's this, 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 and this. And uh, I was like, okay, wow, those are great. And then I like found another article that was like referenced and they were like, okay, we found this launch arguments and like this tech note. And then you go on the tech note and then there are even more launch arguments. 
And for me, it was just really going from article to article to article. And then I had like this kind of huge collection of like different launch arguments. Building up your library of launch arguments. Yes, actually, I should do that probably at some point. <laughs> and I mean, some of them are also um, given by Apple, right? In the second tab yeah. next to the arguments. Yeah, that they have the um, localizables or non-localized um, strings in your app. And they have also the ones for changing the location and for changing the language of your app. So there you can find at least the most common ones that you would probably use. And this is another menu that I think a lot of people don't know about because I didn't know about it for a long time when I was doing iOS development. Oh, same. So, and uh, just to uh, clarify kind of which menu are you talking about, you're talking about the scheme edit uh, dialog in Xcode, right? Yes, exactly. Uh, so when you open the edit scheme dialog, you will see um, you will see some tabs there, like the info one, the arguments one, options and diagnostic ones. And um, in arguments, you can just add random launch arguments. And in options, you will have already some launch arguments that Apple um, provides to you. Like, for example, the localization debug, where you can see non-localized strings and um, the application language and region. And under diagnostics, you will have different environment variables. Nice. Yeah, that's really cool. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of uh, kind of cool hidden features in there. Like you can mock like where you are, you can mock the language and you can set it to German. <laughs> so you <laughs> yes. can see all the long strings or Swedish for that matter. That break your UI. Yeah, exactly. It's a really great way to not have to kind of go into your app or hard code languages in the source code, but you can actually do all this stuff from from Xcode or add launch arguments. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's super handy for debugging UI, definitely. And one launch argument that I know that both of us like to use because we both had it in our talks <laughs> was uh, a adding a launch argument to like skip certain states. Like for example, skipping onboarding or skipping some kind of part of your app that you don't want to use right now, or maybe you want to skip it in a UI test or something like that. Exactly. That's another great use for launch arguments. Or if you want to change, for example, your server environment, you can use that as well. But that's more an environment variable, actually. Yeah, I really liked using launch arguments. Uh, it's, uh, I think you can add a lot of kind of custom debug tools using launch arguments, like you could add artificial network delay to your code if you wanted to test like how your app performs under a slow network condition and you don't want to use the link conditioner on the device. Uh, you could like, like we mentioned, skip onboarding. Uh, you can add all these kind of tools both for yourself and for your testers uh, that just makes it so much faster to debug or get to a specific state or when you're using UI tests to really kind of optimize them to not have to go through the same exact path over and over again. Yeah, definitely. Oh, there's so many usages. Yeah, exactly. All right, uh, really cool. Uh, what do you say? Should we answer some questions that we've gotten from the audience? Of course. All right, so we have our first question here from Aina Yain. And uh, this is a really good question, which I think a lot of people, including myself, have often encountered. And that is how to debug this error called exec bad access using LLDB. So, you know, you've set your exception breakpoints, you've done all your homework, and then you still, you run into this uh, error and you don't really know what's going on. So normally that happens when you have some kind of like bad memory. Um, for example, when an object has been already deallocated and you try to access it. Yeah, exactly. And this is, I think, 
a big reason that this can happen is that a lot of the platform that we run on and a lot of the SDKs are actually C at the bottom, right? So this is a, like a C error. This is not something that usually happens in like Objective C or Swift, where we have you know Swift errors or Objective C exceptions. Mm -hmm, exactly. Yeah. So how can you debug this? I um, for me, it's normally like I have a hunch where where that malicious code is that is causing that. So I'm setting breakpoints before, and I'm actually stepping through the app. Yeah. And um, then I find the line where it crashes. Yeah, exactly. Like uh, going deeper and deeper into the stack, right? And trying to find... Exactly. Stepping in. Yeah, exactly. And like you mentioned, this is normally caused by, you know, some object that is already deallocated uh, or something like that. But isn't those objects just supposed to be nil? Uh, not always. You sometimes just get it overwritten with like random memory, right? So you can actually also sometimes find yeah, different objects there. Yeah, exactly. And one very common cause for this is when you have blocks or closures, and especially when those are like C function pointers, where you are accidentally like calling a block somewhere that was deallocated. And because it's still pointing to that function in memory, but that function doesn't exist anymore, uh, you get this bad access error. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I usually... Uh, do something similar, like I usually also just step through and try to find it. Uh, another thing that I use sometimes is zombies. Oh, Have you ever used this feature, yes, zombies? Yes, of course. Yeah, it's uh, it's really cool, actually. It's like when you hear this name, you might think like, <laughs> zombies? Like, what is this, The Walking Dead? <laughs> I wonder who coined that. <laughs> yeah, I think it's, it's, it's brilliant because the, the way zombies works is that instead of deallocating your object completely, it kind of keeps the zombie around. And whenever there is an over... Uh, deallocated object that it gets sent a message, you actually just get a real like Objective C exception instead of getting this bad access error. Yeah, that's so handy. That's super handy. Yeah, and that can give you another kind of again debugging. Like, there's no silver bullets, right? And there's no like one way to find like all the information you need. You need to use like all these different kind of tools in order to find different parts of the puzzle. Definitely. All right. Uh, next question here comes from Monica Korshell and. Um, she asks, uh, in general, is debugging the first or the last sword that you use when trying to find the root cause of a problem? So is like when you get a bug report, for example, Carol, like, do you immediately jump into the debugger and try to debug the problem? Or how do you usually go about these things? Normally, the bug report has some steps to reproduce. So for me, like debugging something has always like four steps, like first reproducing it, then finding the cause. And at that point, definitely it's debugging, right? You you have a bug, so you're trying to find the cause of the problem, which is essentially the definition of debugging, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And um, yeah, then I try to fix it. And after I fixed it, I actually try to make sure to make the code nice, not only just fix it, but like do it correctly, right? Yeah, the scout rule, right? Like leave it better than you found it. Yes, exactly. And you need to understand, whenever you debug something, that's something that's actually super, super important to me. You need to understand why the bug is happening and not just yeah. quick fix it. I, I remember I did that when I was like just a junior and I was like, hey, I fixed the bug. Uh, I don't know what caused it, but it's gone now. <laughs> I did my job. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then, you know, my senior came around and he's like, no, you don't know what else you broke if you do it that way. Yeah, because you might just be pushing the problem like further up the stack, of course, right? Yeah. You might just be like, oh, it's fixed in this class. This class doesn't have a bug anymore, but 
then this other class actually experiences this problem. Yeah, and that's why it's good if you have tests, because then you can actually make sure that you're not breaking other parts of the code that use that method or function as well. Yeah, it's, it's uh, great that you bring up tests, because this is one of my primary tools when it comes to debugging, actually. And this might sound a little bit weird, like what does testing has to do with debugging, but the way I like to reproduce a lot of bugs, not all bugs, but if you have something tricky, like, and let's say, like you mentioned, like you have some reproduction steps, but you're not quite sure, I like to implement a test that actually reproduces the problem, because then I can just make the test pass, and that serves as like proof to myself that I actually fixed the bug and not just made it slightly better. And it's so much better because you can cover all those edge cases that you encountered while you developed your app, right? And yeah. if you have a new developer join your project, he might not know about all of these edge cases, and then you have a documentation for him about this. That's so great. Yeah, and it's also pretty cool, I think, because, you know, when you get a bug report, it's not the nicest thing, right? Especially like you come into work, it's like a Monday morning or something, and you have like five bug reports. Oh my god, yes. <laughs> you know, that's, that's, that's not like, it's like, well, thank you. Thank, great start of the week. But then you can like turn this into something a little bit more positive because if you end up fixing these five bugs and you also add like tests for all them, then you actually just increased your test coverage and you made your app better, like with better test coverage. And that just kind of, for me at least, makes it feel a little bit better because you took something that was like negative and you turned it into something positive. That sounds really good. All right, we are going to do one final question here, and this one comes from Juan Pablo Rodriguez. And he asks us, how much of the, your development time do you spend debugging versus actually writing code? This is an interesting one, I think. It's kind of hard to measure, but I know that in your talk, you had some pretty interesting statistics, uh, kind of how much time people in the industry in general are spending debugging. Yes, exactly. So I was also looking for that uh, reference or like for like some kind of statistic. And I, I came across a chart by the university, I think it was Cambridge. And they said that we spend 50% of our time with um, debugging or making code work. So that's actually quite a lot. Yeah, that is that is a lot. <laughs> and uh, what are some of the ways that you think that we could reduce like the debugging time and actually be able to spend more time developing? Yeah, definitely. If you just automate some um, tedious tasks that you're always doing, like using um, the symbolic breakpoint on your application main so that you don't always have to import UI kit when you not find something, you know, to always have that one or just, you know, assertions and preconditions so that you catch er um, errors early on or can like educate your fellow developers. Hey, this is what is going wrong. And that might be a reason why. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because there's nothing worse like getting a bug or getting a crash and, you know, you don't have any information because then you can't really do anything. You're like, you don't have anything to act on. So the more information we can have and the more we can try to think upfront about giving that information to our future selves, the better, right? Yes, exactly. Do you have any other tips, Carol, on like how to get more out of your development time when you're debugging? Yes, definitely. So one thing that helps me a lot is just to simplify, you know, like when you have a problem in one line, then it could be that you have like your own implementation of a UI collection view flow layout, or you call a function. And sometimes just breaking up those um, things in multiple lines to like have one step in the first line, like for um, the function call, and then actually using the result of that function in the next one can help you to figure out if it's actually the function call that is a problem or the use of that result. Oh yeah, yeah, that's a really, really good tip. 
it's kind of also ties into the scout rule, mm-hmm. right? Like you're leaving it better than you found it. And you're taking the opportunity to refactor and clean things up while you're in there debugging as well. Very true. Yeah, this is especially true, I think, when you're dealing with uh, force unwrapping in Swift or when you are like accessing something from an array, which can also crash if you have like an you know out of bounds index. If you have like these like five nested force unwrappings on one line (laughs) and then you get a crash crash report you don't know which one it was right yeah exactly don't force unwrap (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's a good that's a good tip in general (laughs) yeah but if you have to or if you're accessing like an array i think what you just said like splitting those things up into separate lines at least gives you a better indication of what, what went wrong yeah sometimes instead of like using your own object that you have there by using something by apple um, you can just see if the problem is in your own code or if it's actually something that happens also with Apple's objects. Yeah, exactly. Because what's the easiest way to uh, spend less time debugging is having less code, right? <laughs> True. <laughs> awesome. All right. Um, this has been a blast, Caro. I think we've had a lot of great tips in this episode and we'll put a lot of links in the show notes, of course, to your talk, to uh, some resources about LLDB, some of the blog posts we mentioned. Uh, if you want to go read more and try to get more use out of LLDB and all the really powerful debugging tools that we have at our disposal. So uh, all that remains now is for me to thank you very much uh, for joining me on this episode. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it was a real pleasure. Uh, if people want to find your work like that you do with VLC or, you know, the talks that you do, uh, where should they go? Yeah, on GitHub, you can find me under um, Carola Nitz or on Twitter. I have a really strange name. It's underscore Carol underscore N. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> there'll be a link in the show notes. That's yeah. good. Yeah, that helps. <laughs> Awesome. So definitely make sure to follow uh, Carol on Twitter. Uh, lots of great stuff there. And uh, you can also find me on Twitter. I'm at John Sundell. And you can find everything about this show and about all my weekly Swift blog posts at swiftbysundell.com. Special thanks again to Instabug for sponsoring this episode. You can go to instabug.com slash Sundell for more information. And thank you so much for listening, everybody. And I'll talk to you on the next episode. Mm-hmm.